I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Global Britain. We were promised it after Brexit. So how's that working out for us? And does Global Britain mean we have more foreign direct investment into this country? Or do we have more British investment in other countries? Or is FDI, as it's called by the anachronistas, bad whichever way it goes? Or is it good whichever way it goes? And how does it compare to simply making stuff here and exporting it? Is that what really Global Britain should be about? If so, why is the government talking about FDIs? Even worse, FDIs that see people investing in our share market for companies that might not even be based here. Is there, in fact, any clarity of vision of what exactly we want? That's what we ask today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, we learned today that Global Britain has got off to a bad start post-Brexit. Our exports to Europe in January fell by 40.1%. And we can't blame it all on COVID because exports to non-EU countries actually increased a little bit in January. So all in all, exports fell by over £5 billion in one month. Uh, It just happens to be the month after we left the EU. I wonder whether Global Britain, the new outlook that comes about because we have broken our ties with Europe, has encouraged by the likes of Steve. Steve Keen, I hasten to add. Uh, Not me. Uh, I wonder whether that global Britain means a Britain owned globally rather than a Britain trading globally. I I say that because there's a story in the FT last week that says almost two months after Brexit, the value of British businesses sold to overseas buyers is the highest on record for that period at close to £20 billion in two months. This on top of 810 inbound deals in the second half of 2020, which totaled £137 billion. Clearly, UK PLC is up for sale. And the time is right. Remember in 2008 when the pound was uh, worth almost $2 and before Brexit uh, it was even talked about, it was $1.60. Now it's wavering around $1.20 and $1.40. It's at the top end of that right now because of the vaccine rollout. But, uh, there, you know, this this low price, Steve, I mean, this is a problem of a weak currency, isn't it? If you are, it, it makes you liable from corporate takeovers from overseas buyers. And that seems to be exactly what's happening right now. Yeah, well, I mean, this this is uh, it's also part of the whole mechanics of uh, your total uh uh, financial flows because, uh, and this is one of the points that MMT gets right in the foundation. I believe they get it wrong when they when they uh, extend it to the way they talk about international trade. But if you're running a current account deficit, so you are, uh, you know, let's say you're importing and paying other fi- other costs equivalent to uh, twenty million twenty billion pounds, let's say uh, a year more. Than you're getting in, uh, then that's balanced on the capital account because you've got to sell bonds to that uh, level of value or sell other assets. And overall, the whatever whatever your is your your uh, deficit on the current account is what's called a surplus on the capital account. But what that means is you're selling the furniture. You're basically you're selling the um, <clears throat> uh, the, the furniture. Uh, to cover the cost of food on the table, and uh, when that you know that's 
the, the larger your, your current account deficit is, the bigger that so, factor is going to be. But do, do you have to be selling it or could you be getting partnerships in, I guess? Because, I mean, the reason often given as a benefit for foreign direct investment is you've got more money coming into the economy. That creates increased employment and increase in exports, stronger GDP. Uh, everyone's very happy. But, I mean, that is nonsense, isn't it? In, maybe that's yeah, okay. it's a fairy tale. It, it, yeah. It's a fairy maybe tale. in, in yeah. developing economies, perhaps that's uh, th- that's the case. Uh, but it's a nonsense when you're looking at uh, companies buying up UK companies. Well, it's, it's, it's the usual mistake of thinking everything in terms of physical capital when we're t- talking about what this international stuff is monetary capital. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's certainly a link between uh, between the physical and the monetary world. But if you, uh, if you take the simplest case of a country running a balance of trade deficit, so it's importing more than it's exporting, then the conventional theory uh, 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 in, in the world of floating exchange rates was, oh, that'll be taken care by the, of by the uh, exchange rate. The exchange rate will, will fall. Uh, your imports will be more expensive. Your exports will earn more in domestic, uh, the same amount international, but that'll be worth more domestically, and it'll all be carried by the uh, by the exchange rate, the price mechanism, which of course is total fracking bullshit. Mm. Did I say fucking there? You do you, I did. You saw it, saw it twice yeah. in one go, don't worry. Uh, okay. You just okay. you probably okay. just Does lost it cancel our- out. No, they maybe they do count. If you could put in minus before the uh, second one, I did just the okay. um, yeah. You, I don't know. One of these days, you are going to lose our um, uh, our, our PG rating or even G rating that we've got. I am. Well, I think I've lost the. the, the in other words, we'll it's nonsense. Apple. I mean, the, the whole. <laughs> The whole idea was when we went floating exchange rates uh, with the breakdown of Bretton Woods back in 71, 73, uh, that was, you know, there's a lot of things to be said in favour of floating exchange rates when you don't have an international currency like the Bancor. Uh, but, but when you have them, one of the arguments was, well, the price mechanism will solve everything. Mm. Uh, so we, uh, Keynes, Keynes hoped to eliminate or at least minimise balance of trade and balance of payments deficits and surpluses by setting a rule with the bank call that a country running more than a 2% of GDP surplus was forced to spend more to bring its surplus down. And the idea was to keep uh, trade deficits and trade surpluses sort of almost within a a, a sort of bounds of of rounding error around zero uh, with a a plus minus, plus or minus 2%. That was his target. Now, the argument was, well, we couldn't keep it with... uh, with fixed exchange rates, because with the American dollar being used rather than a, a global currency like the bank was supposed to be, uh, but the argument was, don't worry, uh, the, pro- the price system will hop in here, and that'll get rid of the trade surpluses and trade deficits. We'll see countries with the trade surplus have a rapidly appreciating currency, and that'll hit them towards zero. And countries with a trade de- deficit having a depreciating currency, and bang, will come out to pretty so much what's zero. That, how, how, well, so how does that work in theory, though? So if if, if I've got, it, it works, uh, it, I mean. It, it, yeah. You know, if I, the, the, what are they trying to say? If I've got a, if if my currency is increasing in value, then that is making my uh, imports a lot cheaper. So I'm going to import more. It's going to make my exports more expensive. Mm. Therefore, I'm yep. I'm not going to make as much. I'm just going to import and live off that's the right. imports. That's the, that's the idea. And if it switches the other way, then you'll stop importing and start producing locally. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, that's the idea. And the, and the, the, the <laughs> fact that there are obvious time lags and that actually, well, you know, say, the, even if you- The exchange rate changes within days or months and it takes generations to set up an industry. Exactly, exactly. And this is what turns up in, in what was called the J-curve. You, you, if you're, you're not quite old enough to, re- to remember Paul Keating, are you, back in Australia? No, of course I am. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I wasn't when quite he was sure whether I loved him or hated him, like everybody else. Well, I, I, as for a one-liner, you can't beat him. Yeah. Um, but but in terms of economics, my theory about Paul Keating was that he wasn't trained in economics. He swallowed an economics textbook, and he swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, mm. and fell for a whole range of mainstream economic thinking. But one particular thing he became quite uh, avid about was talking about what he called the J-curve. And this is the idea that uh, you don't get an immediate response to uh, – uh, you know, if you cut, if you cut your, if your, if your value of your currency uh, plunges by ten percent, which can happen very rapidly, uh, that doesn't automatically cause a quantity adjustment of you now ten percent or more in the opposite direction, because as you said, it takes time to do these things. So there was the J curve, and you'd, you'd have a trade deficit for a while um, because you're, exp- you're exporting less than you're importing. Your currency would fall. That would encourage less imports fairly immediately because you're paying a higher price for them straight away. And then over time, you'd develop more export industries because your exports are now cheaper compared to the rest of the world. Uh, but that would take time and then you get a, a J curve. You'd return back to, uh, you'd go from where you are and down a bit uh, initially. That's the impact of the, uh, that the bottom, the part of the J going down is where you're suffering from the fact that your, yeah. um, your balance, your balance has changed, but you haven't had the quantity adjustments. And then bang, you go up the top and you get to the top of the J and you finally benefit from that. Now that, of course, has worked a charm in Australia. Over 40 years, the trade deficit, um, <laughs> barely even changed. Yeah. It went, you know, we'd get bigger. Uh, we, we had him, uh, Paul Keating, first of all, talking about Australia becoming a banana republic when the trade deficit was 6% of GDP. Uh, it's now, it now has finally hit about roughly around zero and slightly positive. Um, but not at all with the, with the, with this alacrity that was assumed by the theory. And of course, you look at countries like Japan, which has been running trade surpluses pretty much indefinitely since the late 1970s. Uh, and only had a couple of disturbances in its surpluses um, due to the oil oil crisis in seventy three and seventy nine. So the whole idea that the that the price system will get rid of these imbalances mm. is just poppycock. Yeah, well, that's yeah, probably a better word than yeah. Okay. It must be much safer. Um, we're unsafe territory. Of course, in, in word, Australia, yeah, yeah. It's, it's driven even more. Of course, because Australia's uh, balance of trade seems to be almost entirely driven by the price of iron ore. You know, it's either good yeah, or bad. Yeah, which it comes down to a couple of commodities yeah. because you are they are a commodity exporting nation. Then the price of the commodity determines. Whether they have a, a boom or a bust on the balance of payments. So, do you think but overall? Yeah. <clears throat> do you think yep. any, anyone yep. gets it then in government anywhere in the world? So, if we look at because Rishi Sunak, for example, has changed in tune. In 2017, he was saying FDI, foreign direct investment, creates real jobs. Uh, some 70,000 last year alone, of which 70% were outside London, he said. He said FDI raises productivity with new management practices, drives innovation, which fuels our future prosperity. Then- He didn't work in merchant banking at some point, He might point, have done, yeah. Last, oh, damn, but now, okay. since he's become treasurer, last October, he was saying, 
oh, we've actually got to keep our eyes wide open to foreign investment because of the risk of intellectual property theft by hostile countries. Like, I'm not quite sure what those countries would be, like the maybe, USA. Maybe, could, maybe, maybe Russia. Yeah, or, or, or the here. USA, which are actually the biggest investor in the UK. Oh, no, but, they're I, friendly. I know. Yeah. So the, Warm and cuddly. <laughs> Look what they're doing to Meghan and Harry. Warm and cuddly. <laughs> so, yes, I don't know. So he's completely turned around. He's thinking, and he's talking about hostile countries rather than companies, because mm. you can't have hostile companies. But in, in reality, that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, companies come in, take over other companies. He seems to have suddenly clicked on to actually that one might be what foreign direct investment means. Yeah, because it it only gets the technological hit they're talking about. If they if the if the foreign direct investment ends up with new technology which improves what you're doing, so a large part of uh, like for China, for example, China uh, made a, a a killing out of getting American companies to come in. Uh, from offshore, but it was literally coming in from offshore and establishing a new company and bringing their technology with them. The whole objective was to get hold of that technology and also to create a local capitalist class, which they did. Um, but in, when you're looking at uh, the type of foreign direct investment, let's use another Australian example. Uh, I wonder how many of our listeners can, can tolerate Vegemite. Mm, uh, well, look, if they can eat Marmite. Not you? Eat, no, no, You're I, a Marmite I, man, are you? If I, I, no, I'm, I'm neither, actually, unless they are spread very thinly <laughs> and disguised by other things on top. Then I, uh, then I can uh, yeah, go with I, it. I, I use layers of... Uh, I mean, when pe- people see me putting Vegemite on a sandwich, I think I'm I'm putting down mortar for the Great Wall of China. Um, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> now, the, the, the Vegemite was bought out by Kraft, I think. So Vegemite was a quintessentially Australian company. Mm. Uh, those who don't know it, it it's it's a, it's a major it's a yeast extract from making beer, had a high vitamin B content, and uh, it, it was made into a, a, a saleable product in Australia where it's far stronger than Marmite. And became a sort of, you know, one of those things Aussie kids got to eat. Um, and uh, then it was, it was all, you know, local technology that developed. It turned a waste product into a, into a retail um, product, doing very nicely. And uh, then, I'm not quite certain when it was, but about something 10 or 20 years ago, it was bought by Kraft. Yeah. Uh, and then what actually happens, there was no change in the technology, uh, no improvement in that sense. But what it meant by the profits from selling Vegemite went overseas. Yeah. And that's what's forgotten about when you have financial capital taking over your industrial capital. Uh, what then happens is uh, profits that used to be retained onshore and might be, might, be, might be invested onshore, certainly the decision about whether the investment will happen or not will be taken by, by, by your country's nationals. Uh, now that decision is made by a different country and it may be the profits just go overseas and help develop the company that bought the product rather than helping develop the country in which the product was uh, Yeah, so it only really works when it's foreign money is being put in to start a company to create something that wasn't there before if it's it's replacing Mm, something and then it's as you say it's just even if they are providing technological innovation is is that technological innovation enough to compensate for the fact that all the profits are going overseas but I mean what you described in Australia is I mean happening all over the place in the UK, so Cadbury's is American. You know all these British mm-hmm. brands. Rolls Royce is German. Dulux is Dutch. <laughs> Harvey, Nuc- Harvey Nichols is owned by uh, a Hong Kong company. Kit Kat is Swiss. The Financial Times is Japanese. The House of Fraser is Chinese. Manchester United Football Club is owned by an American. Where does it end? Well, it doesn't. It keeps on going because what you. And this is my perspective on on uh, letting foreign direct investment take over that much of your industrial base. You end up being a country of workers with no capitalists. Um, not to say there's not wealthy people uh, ashore making money out of the whole process, but you no longer have a local capitalist class innovating. All the decisions are being made and the offshore owners. And 
uh, and, and this to me can end up meaning that your country grows more slowly than if it uh, hung onto the hung onto the capital itself or it balanced its uh, current account and capital account books by selling bonds rather than by selling uh, going concerns. Mm. So up to the Brexit decision, foreign direct investment actually had been falling. We had uh, there was, so there was two hundred billion. Uh, in 2016, which fell to 66 billion in 2018 and down to 36 billion in 2019, and th- a massive drop from 200 to 36. Mm. But then, as I said in the introduction, it's all turned around again. Now you know we're back into the the hundreds of billions, and I can only assume that is because uh, we know now that there's no tariffs into into Europe. So companies are foreign companies are buying their way into the UK as their way of still getting into Europe. Um, and in that scenario, then we are, uh, we're getting foreign investment into companies that are, that are exporting. But as you say, also the, the profits are going to be uh, exported. So, you know, we might have a few jobs, but you'd assume automation is going to be a large part of this. You can understand why to try and take a slice of the pie. Perhaps we should see next looking at that and saying, okay, well, the only thing we can do in that case is uh, push up our corporate tax. So at least we clip the ticket. Yeah, I mean, it's again. There's no you know, the capacity of companies to evade taxation is obviously mm. legendary. Yeah, um, just shift and your you, you don't, you don't, you don't need it to finance your government spending anyway. Uh, the real thing is you're doing, I and mean, this is why I differ with MMT. Uh, is that I think you should be trying to run a trade sur- uh, at least are t- aiming for a trade balance, if not a trade surplus, uh, because that gives you investable funds you don't otherwise have. And a large part of what's you know, financing you, you mentioned Japan, China, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. These are countries running trade surpluses. Mm. And they're, uh, the, the comp- companies that are doing that are building up uh, reserves from international currency reserves on their own, or they're forcing their own central bank to create, you know, uh, euro in return for the, the surplus dollars they bring in from their trade with America. Uh, but the end result is you've got an investable, you know, investable funds turning up. And uh, it it may well be that you get a better return by using that to buy foreign companies uh, rather than investing domestically. So you get uh, well. I think the classic would be the extent to which the uh, privatised British Rail is owned by the um, uh, Hong Kong government rail corporations of the continent. Mm. Well, yeah, I, yeah. It's actually um, I'm talking about that on my uh, my other podcast this week about the, uh, the structure of rail in the UK. So yeah, I mm-hmm. do another podcast. You know, every day, by the way, it's thebusiness.co.uk. Just in case you haven't been there yet. Um, but is it really a, uh, a a positive balance of trade? Is it really a trade surplus if the trade surplus is created by companies in your country exporting overseas, but the company itself? Is owned by a foreign entity. Is that really a uh, positive balance of trade? It would it would be on the books, wouldn't it? But is, 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 mm, it's is, on the, it's on the books. But it just shows the extent to which uh, the way economists think about the boundaries and, and, the, and the global economy isn't the way the boundaries actually exist. Because transnational corporations, as they were once called, multinational companies, uh, they have operations in numerous countries and uh, the, the the profits in one country can be re- returns to 
people and another. And one essential thing about the, the model of, of free trade, which is so beholden of mainstream economists, is they assume immobility, perfect mobility, pardon me, of capital and labor inside a country and perfect immobility between countries. Now, the perfect mobility in a country is because they've got to say, you know, you allocate your capital efficiently or your labor and capital and you instantly move to the, to the right place pointed to by price signals. But the reason for saying no, no mobility whatsoever, which of course is a complete contradiction of reality, the reason for saying that is that if you don't is pretend that all profits in England are accrued to English capitalists and all wages to English workers. If you don't make that false assumption, then you can't prove that free trade is going to um, benefit everybody in that society uh, because the returns to capital if there's a, a change in the price structure that favours capital over labour, those returns to capital in, in the UK could accrue to capitalists in America or China or Japan or Germany, and you don't get that guaranteed welfare benefit out of free trade. So they simply assume what the real world doesn't exist, which, of course, makes things a lot easier. So I've seen the, uh, the, the IMF refer to uh, where you've got those investments which are made. Uh, but it, it's really passed on to somewhere else. In other words, you know, it's, it's foreign companies owning and then repatriating the profits. They call it, so there's no real benefit to the local economy. They call them phantom FDIs. So, uh, That's Lu a good one. Lu Luxembourg mm. is an example of that. Its inward FDI is about the same as the United States, but it's all transitory because their outward FDI is about the same as their inward FDI. So, mm. I mean, that just, mm. that just says, <clears throat> okay, here's an economy. I hear it's a nice place to do your laundry. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, there, there it is. Uh, a lot of apparently uh, queuing up in and out uh, but I mean they just, it does let's be profitable and just uh, charitable I should say and just say it's uh, you know it's the finance industry and that is what you know obviously the government is hoping here um, they are they, they seem keen to boost the globalization of the city of London attract new companies from overseas to invest here but really what they're talking about when they, they say invest here I mean they're not even necessarily saying are they uh, buy up a UK company they're actually just saying well we want you to list here listing Britain, I mean mm, that, mm. Uh, that, and that might count as more foreign investments too. But the companies aren't necessarily even located here. So, is that good or bad or indifferent for the UK economy? I guess it creates a few extra jobs in the cities to try and replace those we've lost through Brexit. But really, it's no material benefit, is it? No, it's no material benefit, and it's it's a form of deindustrialisation as well. When the whole uh, the way foreign direct investment is sold, it helps you industrialise. Um, and yes, there are examples of that. I mean, China, I think, is the classic case where foreign direct investment uh, caused an obvious massive uh, uh, industrialization. But in general, when this is done under the, under the steam of multinational corporations uh, at, between countries of similar levels of development, uh, it ends up being a way of, of scraping off the profit or getting rid of competitors and moving into buying a market position rather than necessarily bringing a new product to that market. So Britain... Investing overseas would obviously be a good thing if we were buying up companies overseas or helping to grow businesses overseas, because that would see those uh, profits repatriated back here. But to do that, I guess we've got to have the uh, we've got to have the companies. We're going to have that that want to expand. We're going to have companies that are successful here that want to expand and uh, and take over companies in their line of work elsewhere. And I'm not so sure there's too many of those. No, well, you, you've got a few British examples. I mean the. Um uh, what's the uh, the vacuum Dyson Dyson yeah, company? He's moved overseas, uh, but that's not that's not based in Singapore, is yeah. it? Yeah, based in Singapore. Yeah. Well, I think it's a part yeah. of it's here, but most of his yeah. most of the I mean, uh, what, what, labor is done in yeah. Singapore. Yeah, 
What, what you can certainly say is that is like in terms of the UK's position, it's gone from one of the significant industrialised countries to an also-ran uh, over the last 30 years, or certainly the last 20, 20, 25 years. And a lot of that has been driven by, uh, you know, a free market approach, uh, which basically said, let's ignore, this has been coming from Maggie Thatcher, let's, let's make us into a service exporter rather than a manufacturing country. Uh, and that idea was the services are going to fill the void left by the collapse in the, um, in the export market of manufacturers. Uh, but in fact, that hasn't happened. You've continued running a trade deficit and manufacturing has gone from 20% of the economy to 10. Well, one of the countries you mentioned that's, uh, uh, that's taking over British industries is a country called Germany. I believe they've tried it a couple of times before. <laughs> so they're uh, much more successful this time. Don't mention the war. Slight change of tack. Uh, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but, but but yeah, they uh, that that still has twenty percent of its GDP being from manufacturing. So to to me, this whole idea that you can service sector your way out of trouble uh, just doesn't r- realise that for, you know yes, services are a major part of the economy, uh, but when you leave banking out of it, there then there you know that services like haircuts, um, you know. Uh, health and so on, which are not particularly exportable, mm. and you end up spending less on them than you spend on the manufacturers. And if you run your manufacturing sector down, you get a trade deficit and you get caught in a bit of a vicious cycle, which is where I think the UK uh, is headed. Yeah. So if we were to try and turn that around, I guess if you had foreign companies investing money into this country to expand into this market and maybe to expand into, into Europe, like building cars here, for example, um, if they were able to provide some sort of innovation and perhaps use a a bit of local expertise. I mean, it's not great, but it's a step in the right direction, isn't it? Because we we can build on that expertise and uh, and there's got to be some hope there. And obviously it's creating employment that didn't exist before. So that sort of, if it's expanding an existing entity, Mm -hmm. there is a benefit from that. Better than nothing at all anyway. Well, this is, I mean, that's one reason where you could regard the investment. Uh, you're going to hate me bringing in Elon Musk here, but Musk's um, building a gigafactory in Germany. You can, mm. you can perceive it that way. I mean, yes, that's, that is bringing a technology. He's actually not, he's not buying a, a, the, the German equivalent of, uh, of Vegemite. What would that be? Sauerkraut? Mm. Uh, he's not buying a sauerkraut and, and selling it back to Germans. He's building a, a brand new factory with, with you know, advanced technology, which has only been developed not just by, in America, but in his company. And uh, there's also talk of a partnership with VW. Um, so that that is a case where, yes, you are getting uh, quite unique overseas technology as part of foreign direct investment. And that's that, that's the, that's the, um, the poster child of, of that sort of behavior. But most of this stuff tends to be buying existing capital stock and taking over the ownership. Uh, without actually changing the uh, the, mo- the the manner of production or improving the technology at all, so the FDI the FDI definition by the Office of National Statistics is where FDI is where the parent company controls at least ten percent of the voting power of the company being invested in. So they can't. So if you just built factories here, if you were a German company and you just decided you're going to build factories here, um, then. Uh, that actually wouldn't be counted as FDI by that by that definition because you actually have to have bought into a company based here. So FDI by that measure basically is corporate takeovers, isn't it? It's not. It's not somebody expanding into this country and, and employing people. That wouldn't be counted as. They, well, how do they? How do they? If, they, if that's so, how do they actually classify a case of you know where a, 
uh, a, a brand new firm is built and in factory constructed. Is that covered in the stats? Or it must be covered in the well, stats. Well, they say no. The uh, FDI is where the parent company controls at least ten percent of the voting power of the company being invested in in this country. So, well, I mean, if you have a, if you have a company setting up a, a foreign-owned extension of itself. Uh, then yeah. it'll be 100% ownership, no. so it will still yeah. fall in there. The, what, what, you, what you're missing is any re, any definition in terms of the physical capital. It's all about the financial capital. Yeah, and that's the problem, isn't it? It is all. Mm. And so, I mean, how, how? So how should we measure it then? Well, I mean, it, I would actually like to divide it into when it is just simply a financial issue, where you're taking over ownership of shares mm. and doing nothing to the productive base, and versus ones where you are actually bringing in some technology. Uh, and, and preferably technology you don't have domestically, so you actually get the sort of benefit you're talking about for it. Now, I think you, you probably find that 90 to 90% plus of the investment is the former case, buying into the ownership structure. Uh, very little of it would be bringing in foreign technology. The example of, uh, I mean, I can't think of an equivalent example uh, of uh, Tesla to the Germany in the UK. There may be some, but most of the time uh, this stuff doesn't bring any new technology with it. It simply changes the ownership of the firm. Yeah. So every time the uh, the pound drops significantly, well, it's a little bit different in these days, but normally when there's not a, a pandemic going on, if you see the pound drop, the FTSE 100 normally increases. And that's because we do, you know, there are a lot of the FTSE 100 companies are actually companies that own uh, so many um, businesses overseas or they're operating overseas and listed on the FTSE 100 um, that the ability to repatriate those profits with a, uh, with a lower pound helps those businesses on the on, on the stock exchange so uh, so there's there's evidence isn't it of uh, you know where your business is and what exchange rates are and uh, how complicated that becomes when you're looking at uh, investments overseas yeah I mean it, it's um, it, it's one of these things which is sold on the on the on the poster uh, basis you know the the brand new factory and um, in Germany example uh, but the reality is is far more frequently the the financial. So, like again, with the stock market, the stock market is sold as a place which actually raises capital. In fact, the amount of new capital raised on the stock market is pitiful compared to the amount of takeover mm. uh, money involved in, in changing ownership of existing existing um, shares. So, the, the secondary market far dominates the primary, but the the whole process is sold on the basis of what the primary market does. And on that basis, I'd like to see these things, including a, you know, effectively a primary market test. Is this improving? Uh, UK technology, for example, if you let a, a foreign company invest in, a, in one of your domestics, is there a technology quid pro quo as well as a uh, quid pro dollar? So there's a new share. I mean, they're, they're trying. I mean, the, the, uh, sadly, the, 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 the whole focus for this government seems to be, no, we just need to get more investment means selling more shares, irrespective of, mm. how, of how that works out, even to the point of saying, well, OK, let's find vehicles now where companies can uh, basically raise capital uh, through uh, listing on the share market, even though they don't actually produce anything. And then they can go out and use that, that money as shopping money to go and try and buy other companies. Um which would almost certainly be overseas because there's not too many companies to buy here. So, again, it's just transiting through London. It's just another way, isn't it, of getting more listings on the London Stock Exchange. Yeah, and the, the whole the whole city is, you know, the whole country is dominated by the city. And, I mean, you know, that's one thing. You you have to live in the UK for a while to really experience that. Mm. But the, the the wealth gap between the city and London itself and then between London and the rest of the country is, is huge. And uh, because the politicians... 
uh, you know, the, the financial sector has the year of the politicians in a way that the industrial sector lost long ago and the workers have never, haven't had since the days of uh, Macmillan. Uh, you, you get policies which support the financial sector coming out. They try to dress them up as though they support the entire country, but it's a bit of a sham. So China, of course, says uh, if you're going to invest in, in our country, then you've got to have a local partner. You know, it's got to be a 50-50 operation. That was the classic thing with the Chinese. I don't know if they still, well, they still do it, but I mean, that was quite... I heard literally from the horse's mouth, or the, for the otherwise known as the management of the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone in 1982. If you're going to invest as in an American company in the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone, which is China's first free trade zone, you had to have a Chinese partner. Hmm. They had to own 50% of the business within five years, even though they started with zero contribution to the capital. So the Chinese were very deliberate, saying, okay, yes, we want your money and we want your technology, and you've got to give some of the ownership to us. And uh, if I wanted to compare and industrial policies, I think I'd have more time for China's than I have for the UK. Well, I was going to be my next question. I mean, maybe it's not quite as enticing, is it, when there's only a market of 65 million people? But I mean, uh, would Britain be in the position to, to say such a thing here? Look, if you're going to invest no, in, in this no. country, you've got, to, you've got to have a partner. No, because again, it wasn't, it was, in initial days, it wasn't a case of taking advantage of the Chinese market because there was none. Mm. I mean, you, I mean, that was, I had some vivid memories of going through China. Yeah. Pardon? pardon? It was just the cheap labor force. Cheap labor force, that's right. Now, the UK is getting there. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) With shithouse wages. Yeah. My third square in one show. Um, You might actually get to the stage where you're the cheap wage enclave off the coast of Europe. Um, But that's not exactly an ambition you should have. Uh, You try to be more the island of Singapore. then, oh, God knows what the other island would be, but, um, you know, a cheap way, making yourself into a second Romania um, is, is not, not to me a particularly sensible way to go so, when you began with yeah. a good industrial structure. Right. So is it fair to say then that more foreign direct investment almost certainly is a bad thing for the UK? Well, I would. That, I, I have that attitude. I mean, I know there are going to be exceptions, but I'd be looking for the exceptions rather than the rule when it comes to uh, applications to invest money uh, in a national economy. You've got to say, okay, um, you know, you expect it to mean your ownership is going overseas. You'll lose a certain amount of control. It better be a good offset for that. And the offset isn't just the fact that you pay the current shareholders a nice, tidy sum of money. But could you also say, well, okay, yeah, there does need to be some control happening here as well. I mean, I, then you get back to that that mm. 50% rule. I mean, to, to actually be able to say, well, no, you can't move or you can't close this plant that you've built up because uh, the board's not going to allow it because there's too many Brits on board. Then you get into that 50% rule that, uh, that China had, and that's not going to wash, is it? as you say. Yeah. So, uh, so you've really got to you've really got to make sure the rules are right at the beginning, uh, and so yeah, so so it needs to be stipulated, doesn't it? There's actually, there's got to be some benefit if you're going to put money into. Well, if you're going to put money into this. So, what are we saying? If you want to get, going to put money into this country, then you've got to show that it's going to create certain benefits for this country. But then that would go against this idea that no, we just want people to list on the London Stock Exchange. We don't really care because uh, that's going to create a few jobs. I don't know. Where do, where do you draw the line? Well, I think it'd be drawn a long way from where it's currently being drawn. The line <laughs> at the moment is around the city of London and everything good has to happen inside the line. Um, and, and that, you know, this is why the UK has been deindustrialized. Remember as a kid, one of my favorite shows uh, was called The Plane Makers. Did you ever see it? No, no, you are talking before my time. Okay, well, yeah. it was about a British company involved in the manufacture of planes. Now, that at the time right. was not a preposterous comedy theme. Okay, mm-hmm. it would be now. Um, 
there, there must be some UK manufacturers of some aircraft, I imagine. But, uh, well, Rolls-Royce engines. I mean, there you the go. days when yeah, they were, British, British, were, were hanging off the who wings, wings, wings of most planes. Who was Rolls-Royce? So the Germans there own that, think, don't they? Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. I but the, the, the wheels have just fallen off your, your Messerschmitt. No, no, <laughs> exactly. That's right, but the engine's still there. That's right. So, um, yeah, so, okay. So I'm wondering where we, where, we, where we go with this. How do you implement it in a way which is, uh, which is effective? I mean, how do, you, how do you ensure that the investment... Because you can't... Surely you can have both. Surely you can say, well, okay, we want the city to prosper because uh, we need to sell those luxury cars and someone's got to buy those expensive houses in London. So let's have that. How do you allow that to happen while at the same time saying, but we also, as well as people just investing uh, in, in this country because they just want to be listed on the London Stock Exchange, how do you also say, but we need to make sure that there's a, a, a good growth in, in the industrial base, and we'll be happy to take money and expertise from overseas to ensure that that happens. Well, that's, that's where you start looking at where the holes are in your industrial structure to begin with and where you need to fill them. And that's where, again, I come back to my um, admiration for the, the, I think there are two databases called the uh, uh, global uh, index of complexity, complexity. Harvard and, one, and yeah. one of the other American universities, and they simply say there are there are you can see which industries are necessary to support other industries, and what new industries can be can, can be generated by combining existing industries, and those are the ones you encourage investment in, both domestic and international. If you can't get the domestic, then you go for the international. But something like that that has a look, has a look at the overall industrial structure and what you wish to change, and of course. That's going to get much more serious, I think, uh, in the aftermath, not just to COVID, but also with climate change coming our way, we could see the end of the days of long global supply chains. So do we say, okay, if you're not in those industries, you can't, or do we say, no, we'll give you some sort of incentive, we'll give you a a, a tax break, or as we said, don't normally have much influence because people can shift uh, around profit centres as they feel fit. But you give some sort of incentive, I don't know, maybe you give them uh, lower, um, lower rates. For example, well, particular I mean, industries. The question whether you want to encourage the thing in the first place, but I'd certainly say if you're going to encourage foreign direct investment, make sure it's something that builds your industrial structure. Yep. If it doesn't, then uh, then then don't go looking for it. All right, that's fair enough. We'll leave it there. Um, great to talk again, Steve. Catch you next week. Okay. Yep. And another absolute corker next week. Uh, we're going to look at the economics of how firms work, the idea of the supply and demand curves, and uh, look, you know, what conventional economists tell you uh, is the way it works and how it works in reality. That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Back next week. See you then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.